congregation, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 20. And if you are able, please stand on your feet for the reading of God's word today. Acts chapter 20, the reading will begin at verse 17 to the remainder of the chapter. In this passage this morning, we will hear Luke, the author of this book of Acts, report on the Apostle Paul's movement toward Jerusalem. And in this passage, the, Lord, the, the, the Apostle is going to stop in a port near the city of Ephesus, and he's going to summon the elders of the church of Ephesus to meet him down by the sea, and he's going to give them a farewell speech. Let us pray. Father, bless the reading of your word. We ask that you would do so by the merits of Jesus Christ. We ask, O Lord, that you would give to us ears to hear and hearts to believe and wills to obey. Father, we pray that your word by your spirit would reform our lives, that we would go away from this place changed and changing because we have indeed heard the voice of the master. Give us what we need, O Lord. Help us or we cannot be helped. Give us graces that we do not deserve. Regard us not merely according to our preparation, but according to your mercies. Grant our sons and our daughters here. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the last day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I, re that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, 
which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word. Please be seated. Beloved, in the reading you've just heard today, we have heard what amounts to a deathbed speech. Paul will not be coming back to Ephesus. They will not see his face again. Paul knows things are going to only become more difficult as he journeys eastward to Jerusalem. There he will be arrested and he will remain under arrest through the very end of Luke's report in the Acts of the Apostles. And he will eventually be put to death. So Paul does what all good fathers should do when they know the end is near. He gathers the family and tells them where the family treasure can be found. The family treasure, Paul says, is found in the things he has already spoken to them. The family treasure, Paul says in verse 32, is found in the word of God's grace. Men, is that where the family treasure is found in your house? Is that to what you would point? That the greatest treasure you could give your children is the word of God? To hear the word of God? To read the word of God at home? To sit before the word of God preached at church? Is that the greatest treasure? Because that's exactly what Paul says the greatest treasure is for the family of God. The riches the family of God will live upon to build something they will not be ashamed of, which is maturity in Christ, the wealth to build that building, according to verse 32, is the word of God's grace. And the riches that will allow these family members to obtain even more riches, which are in reserve for them as a heavenly inheritance among the holy ones of God, those riches are also in the word of God's grace. I am certainly focusing on verse 32. Verse 32 is really quite remarkable. Paul does not have a special technique for them to use. Paul does not have a special substance for them to eat or drink. Paul does not have a special experience for them to perfect. Paul does not have a special destination for them to which they must travel. Paul does not have a special artifact for them that they must go and see or touch. Paul does not even have a special behavior for them which they must do. What will keep them moving 
he says, what will keep them maturing, what will protect them against the wolves, what will guard them against sloth, what will help them pay careful attention to themselves and to the flock, what will finish in them what has been started in them, what will even be better than if Paul were there himself, is the word of God's grace. I always look at verses of scripture and wonder, would I write that to a friend? Would I say that? And I come away more chastened often than confirmed. It is not the word of man's duty that will help them, but the word of God's grace. The Christian enters upon his duty, prevails in his duty, find strength to perform his duty and bring his duty to completion, not by a power found in the word of duty. Commandments by themselves do not have power. Warnings by themselves do not have power. That which is able, says Paul in verse 32, and yes, it's that wonderful Greek word dunamis, That which is able, Paul says, is the word of God's grace. Do we think this way? Well, perhaps not, and that's why we're here, to have our thinking reformed by the word of God. What is the word of God's grace? It is the promise of God written in the blood of Christ to forgive and reconcile sinners to himself to be God to them forevermore, to never forsake them, to bestow upon them that which they could not earn, to keep for them that which they could not keep, to give to them a Savior whom they did not seek, to love them first before they ever loved him. That is the word of God's grace. Listen. The power for all things in the church, for all things in the Christian, for all church officers whom are being addressed in our text, the power for all is the word of God's grace. Do you think your life is lacking power? Does sin beat you like a gang of thugs? The power is in the word of God's grace. This is also known as the gospel. And you see the synonymous phrasing of the apostle back in verse 24 of the text. But I account, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Its twin is in verse 32. Beloved, this is what Paul wants them to fixate upon. To wash themselves in. To eat and drink again and again. To sing about, to study, to master, to meditate on the word of God's grace. After he leaves Asia... Paul does not want these elders to be obsessed with these questions about Paul. What was Paul like? What did Paul do? 
What was Paul, where was Paul from? How did Paul dress? What did Paul eat? Who did Paul read? What was his favorite section of the beach? No, no, no. What did Paul write to the Corinthians about this? He said, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That's 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Paul wants the church leaders, and listen, listen, this is so important. Paul wants church leaders obsessed with only one question as it concerns Paul. Are you ready for it? What did Paul say? What did Paul say? What did Paul say? That's the question he wants them to be obsessed with. What did Paul teach? What did Paul declare? What did Paul herald forth? And we know Paul wants us obsessed with this question because he was obsessed with it. By my count, in our reading this morning, Paul refers to his own speech among them seven different times. Two times in verse 20, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Then there's a third time in verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's the fourth time in verse 24, the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Then a fifth time in verse 25, I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom. A sixth time in verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. A seventh time in verse 31, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And then what I take as the eighth time, because we are the church of the bonus, the eighth time is the pivotal, the pivotal summary statement in verse 32, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. See that? The word of God's grace doesn't make you a worse sinner. Grace isn't dangerous in making men worse. Grace is dangerous in separating men from their sins, giving them an inheritance among those who are holified. My translation of sanctified. Same word in, in the Greek. What Paul gave them when among them is what he commends to them now when absent. The word of God's grace. How then did Paul discharge the ministry that Christ had given him to do? By speaking. Not by farming. Not by starting a business. Not by going to war. Not by public protesting. Not even by making tents. And he was a good tent maker. He did the Lord's work by speaking. Because it is by speaking that God's grace reaches the hearts and enters the ears of sinners. Because grace is all about what God has done for sinners in Jesus Christ. Grace is not about what men and women might do for God. 
or should have done for God or will do for God or have done for God. Grace is not about that. Grace comes to us before we can do anything. This is why grace must be announced. It must be spoken. It must be proclaimed. It must be declared. It must be heralded like a victory is heralded. Because it is something God has already accomplished in Jesus Christ. Crucified and risen. God's work in Christ is accomplished. And it is now being applied by the Holy Spirit to men and women by a word. Because it is the works of God for sinful man, not man's works for God. So what Paul is saying in verse 32 to the elders of the church at Ephesus is that the word of grace will be able to do more among them than any other kind of word. Therefore, the elders must keep themselves deeply rooted in the word of grace, squared up to this word of grace, refreshed in this word of grace, studying this word of grace, skilled in this word of grace, bold in this word of grace. I have often been frustrated, and I, I know that it's a risk for p- preachers to use the pulpit for personal therapy sessions. So I hope I'm not about to do that, but forgive me if I do. I've often been frustrated by the talking heads who are willing to go behind a microphone and stand in front of a camera and complain about the absence of the Ten Commandments being posted on a courthouse building or in a park or something like that. And, that the, and it turns out that the same guy lamenting the absence of the Ten Commandments does not preach the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners. He turns out to be a rank moralist who has a word of something, but it is not the word of God's grace because he fears the word of God's grace. He fears that people will go and do whatever they want to do if they hear that their sins are forgiven. Well, I have news for him. Martin Luther was right. No man can truly preach the gospel of God's grace without being accused of sounding like an antinomian, somebody who is against the law of God. But we are not against the law of God. But it is so easy to think that we are when we are preaching the word of God's grace that people think, oh, that's dangerous. Be quiet. If that's your reaction, that means you've come close to the gospel of grace. And as I pointed out at the end of verse 32, this word of God's grace does not make you less sanctified. It actually moves you along in the way of holiness. That's the grace we're talking about, a grace that transforms men by its radical, free good news that you are loved for eternity without regard to your sins, but because of Jesus Christ you are loved, and your sins will be defeated. And their penalty has already been answered, and their power already broken. Paul discharged the ministry that Christ gave him to do 
by speaking. Because speaking, beloved, is the only way you can announce that everything that has needed doing for you to be right with God has been done by Jesus Christ. Well, then why do I need to be doing anything? Well, you don't need to be doing anything to be right with God. It's been done. You need to get a much better reason then for your obedience. Why do I need to be doing anything if it's all been done? Because what has been done is that which finally and for the first time in my life releases me from walking maimed by sin and the corruptions of my flesh and the lusts of my heart. I am walking like a beast on the earth until the herald brings good news and I stand upright for the first time and I walk upright in new holiness for the first time and I start to dress myself in my inheritance the holiness of the, of the sanctified. I start to live now on the earth as I shall live forever in the heavens because I am united to one who is seated in the heavens. God's work in Christ is accomplished. And it is now applied by the Holy Spirit to men and women by a word. Because it is God in his works, not man's works, that are the good news. Beloved, you will never find great news in your works. But you can only find great news in God's works. So what Paul is saying in verse 32 to the elders is that the word of grace will do more among them than any other kind of word. What happens when church leaders give up on the word of grace? When they lose sight of it? When they let it kind of drift out into the fog? They used to, have it they used to keep it tied up right on the, the port, but what happens when it's drifting away and you can only see a little rope? Well, we know the answer because it's in verse 29. When church leaders give up on the word of grace, the flock becomes a target, an easy target for wolves. Verse 29 says, The wolves come in and succeed in devouring the sheep. And how do they succeed? Well, they use speaking as well. Do you see it? They start speaking twisted things, the text says. These twisted things are always contrary to the word of grace, but always attractive to the flesh of man. This is why wolves succeed in drawing away disciples. But notice what Paul says. He says the wolves will come, will come in from the outside and the wolves will arise from the inside, from among church leadership. But wherever they come from, whether it's outside or inside, they draw away disciples, Paul says. There's no real violence taking place here. The flock actually goes with the wolves willingly. How can that be? 
Vinod Ramachandra wrote a helpful little book titled Gods That Fail. And he makes a very important observation in that book. He says that for the believing community, the most powerful and seductive idols are the ones that are easily Christianized. That's how the wolves can be so successful. They're not necessarily coming in and naming strange gods among us. They're coming in and even talking about Jesus. This is what was going on in Galatia. The Galatian problem was a problem of devouring wolves within who even honored Jesus as the Christ. But they dishonored him, saying his works on the cross as a substitute for sinners were not sufficient. You must add some of your own Jewish works to the Messiah's work. That was a wolfish bite, and many were devoured because Jesus was being honored. Think about it. Pelagianism. Arianism, Arminianism, Finneyism, Osteenism. I'm not sure that one's on the map yet, but it should be. These are people's real names with an important suffix. People who were in the church, and they set something on the ears of the disciples in the churches that sounded like Christianity, but it was without the word of God's grace. They did not come and say, brother, Jesus has accomplished everything. Let your gratitude overflow into your obedience. No, they came and said, you need to obey in a special way. Then you will finish what Jesus started. Paul Tripp explains in his book, Lead, the dynamic that Paul, the apostle, is speaking of. A leader whose heart has been captured by other things does not forsake ministry to pursue those other things. He uses ministry position, power, authority, and trust to get those things. Every leadership community needs to understand that ministry can be the vehicle for pursuing a whole host of idolatries. In this way, ministry leadership is war, and we cannot approach it with the passivity of peacetime assumptions. And at the very front lines of the war is getting the word of God's grace right, being unmovable and firm on preaching the gospel that Christ has accomplished all that is needed to be accomplished to make a sinner right with God. And therefore, you have to get a much different reason for your obedience. Let me just touch on a few of those I mentioned, and then we'll wrap this up. Pelagianism. Who was Pelagius? He was a wolf, speaking twisted things. 
He was a fifth century British monk, and he attracted his following due to having an austere personal piety and a commitment to virtue. Those are Christian things. He was a well-known teacher of morality, and when he visited Rome, he saw such low morals there. He was scandalized. And who did he blame? He blamed Augustine. He blamed the bishop, Augustine, for preaching a grace that wasn't sufficiently reforming the people. So Pelagius ends up denying original sin and teaches that every person has been born morally neutral, that we are all able to sin but also able not to sin. And Pelagius said that human beings fall into sin by choosing to follow Adam's example. So people can be saved by following the example of Christ instead of that of Adam. While grace is helpful, Pelagius taught, it's not necessary for a person to attain eternal life. So in this way, Pelagius denies the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. He denies the full satisfaction of Christ's accomplishment on the cross. And you know who's attracted to Pelagius? People who are angry that the world is immoral. And they think that getting rid of grace will actually make men better. But it, me- it leaves men dead. You want to see a city full of dead religious men? Well, you've already seen it, haven't you? It's called Jerusalem, 30 AD. The clergy there, Jesus said, your father is the devil. You are white sepulchers, he said. You know what a sepulcher is? It's a bone box. They buried their dead above ground after they put them in a cave and all the meat became corrupt. They took the bones out, put it in a bone box, and the box sat above ground on the hillside, and the sun beat on it for years, bleaching it white. Jesus said, the clergy in the church of Jerusalem were sepulchers, whited sepulchers, clean on the outside but dead on the inside. Men are dead even if they are austere, until they are united to Jesus Christ by faith alone, until he becomes their all in all, until he has satisfied all their sin debt and has reconciled them fully and forever to Christ, they're dead, no matter how severe they are, like Pelagius. Because there's so many names, I think I'll just name the category for the next one. Antinomianism. I said this word earlier. It's a wolfish doctrine. It can only be defeated by the word of God's grace. What is antinomianism? Well, it's any doctrine or any teacher that says, since we are saved by grace, it does not matter how we live. We have no law by which to regulate and govern our lives Jesus is in the, in the business of forgiving us. Don't tell me that I'm doing something wrong. Jesus will forgive me. 
That is a antinomian. And what they have done is they've actually killed grace by talking about grace. They've actually turned grace into a rule instead of a person who is Christ crucified and risen, uniting sinners to his body and blood. How have they changed grace into a rule, the antinomians? They said, because I can state what grace is in a sentence, as a proposition, as a confession, I can now prove to you that I am free to sin without danger because I know what grace is. That's just grace as legalism. If you really are interested in that, a whole book has been written about it by Sinclair Ferguson called The Whole Christ. Another one, and then I'll bring this to a close, experientialism. Experientialism. This is another way that wolves come into the body, come into the flock from within even, and take the little lambs of Jesus Christ and make them full of fear and restlessness. Here's what experientialism does. It removes apostolic doctrine from the life of the Christian church and replaces it with experiences. Experientialism doesn't ask, what did Paul say? What did Paul say? It doesn't want to know what Paul said. It's immaterial what Paul said. The right question for the experientialist is, what can we do to make people feel like they've had an encounter with God. The experientialist hire professionals to curate for people a Christianity that stops talking about repentance and stops talking about blood and instead creates in a worship experience a good time and good emotions in good facilities so that the church has a good reputation. The knowledge of God is replaced with a search for a knowledge of the self. David Wells was talking about this very dark spirit, this very dark spirit in the church, when he said this in his book, God in the Wasteland. There is a hunger for religious experience, but an aversion to theological definition of that experience. We don't want to know what the apostles say about it. Beloved, the word of God's grace is that which the Apostle Paul commends to the elders of Ephesus. Church leadership has to be easily poked, and what comes out of them is the word of God's grace, the doctrine of the gospel. Does that mean Paul never preached law, never taught law? Of course that doesn't mean he never taught law. He, he speaks of repentance as part of his regular teaching. Men don't repent for unnamed sins. Men don't repent for unparticular sins. We repent for particular sins against a holy God, against his holy law. Paul, of course, taught law. But Paul distinguished between law and gospel. 
the word of God's grace is the power of God for justification, for sanctification, for salvation. So here it is again and again and again. Everything that needed to be accomplished for you to be reconciled fully and forever to a holy God before whom you will stand at the end of history, everything that needed to be accomplished has been accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. You are not finishing it. He finished it. You are an heir of it. And as it fills your heart that everything has been accomplished, as this wonderful news brings a light inside of you, you now cannot walk in darkness because you have never experienced such love. Yes, there is real experience in the Christian life, but we want the theological definition of that experience. We want to say, what did Paul say? Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we pray that you would indeed grant the word of your grace to be able to build up this church of Jesus Christ. That the word of your grace would indeed be able to bring us to our inheritance along with all those who are sanctified in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would be unashamed of the word of your grace, that though many wolves will speak against it, will try to twist it and tweak it, will try to sideline it, diminish it, will try to tell us how dangerous it is to announce to people who have been terrible sinners, who have a terrible reputation, who have wrecked and ruined many of their relationships, that we would go and tell them that they can come home and be fully reconciled and become heirs of God and children in your house, that such a people could be told that they can come home freely and be baptized and have a name and a title to your heaven, all before they hardly even get started in the new life, Oh, Lord, we know that many will try to keep us from saying this. We pray, Father, that we would not sup with wolves, that we ourselves would not be found among their number, that we ourselves would not be led away by their teaching. We pray that we would stand firm and fast on the word of your grace and not try to trim it, change it, weaken it, make it better, but proclaim it. And Lord, we thank you that it has come to us. We pray that we would become more and more skilled in bringing it to others. In Jesus' name, amen.